It's a joy to greet you in the name of Christ, our Lord, who's the head of the church. And I thank your pastor for this kind invitation to come and worship Jesus together and open up the word of God together. Let me invite you to turn to the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. I generally say it like that so I can irritate my publishing friends because many of your Bibles will say the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, my pneumatology makes me remind us that the apostles could do nothing had they not been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the acts of the Holy Spirit through those fickle apostles. But that would be too long of a title. So Acts chapter 15. It's a joy to be here particularly because of the role your church plays in Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware Life and Life of the Delaware Baptist Association. Uh, one of our brothers that serves at the convention, Brother Blake Hardcastle, is a member here. And so it's just a joy to worship the Lord with you today. I want to thank uh, the Lord also. My brother and his wife are here. And uh, I was mentioning in the earlier service, he lives in Wilmington. Uh, so that's how I know how to say Newark instead of Newark. And so uh, thankful for him and her, her being here. Let me read from Acts 15. <clears throat> Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the heart, beareth them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and has put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. The church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity 
to be a wonderful witness for the glory of Jesus Christ in a divided society. In the book of Acts, the church receives the Holy Spirit in the second chapter on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of the words of Christ to the believers to stay in Jerusalem and wait until they have received power from on high. And he says in that first chapter, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so all those Jews from all kinds of nations under the heavens and the known nations at that time begin to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and begin to go out as witnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ. As they begin to go out, God would not only share the gospel with the Jews, but the gospel would also be shared with Gentiles. Uh, you remember in Romans, for example, we are not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek. And so in the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, we begin to see all kinds of people, all kinds of Jews, all kinds of Gentiles being changed by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same message that Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus Christ whom you crucified, he would say to the Jewish audience, and then he would say to a Gentile audience, this Jesus Christ who was crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. Believe upon him, and in believing in him, you shall have life, forgiveness of sin, and everlasting life. And so that message was changing men and women. God was, being, God was pleased to change men and women, and the work was done by the Holy Spirit as they were, uh, in John 3 language, born again, born of the Spirit. And so as God began to do that wonderful work, things got a little messy. Things did not get messy because God is messy. God is holy, pure, divine, sovereign, majestic, righteous, glorious, perfect in all of his ways. But God in his mercy chooses to work through messy people. I mean, who in the Bible wasn't messy? Abraham was messy. Joshua was messy. David was messy. Uh, who, who, who in the Bible wasn't messy? Peter is messy. Paul was messy. Who, who, who in the scripture is not messy? Uh, if you read the scripture, if you read the New Testament, I mean, the only person you think maybe wasn't messy was John. I mean, he was the only apostle that stayed there, and he was there, and Jesus said, take care of my mother. Uh, when you read through John's Gospels, he's always the one that he describes in the third person, and, you know, that good disciple that would stay close to Jesus, whom Jesus really loved, he was there. But excluding John, everybody in the Bible was messed up. So, if God the perfect, holy, righteous one by his spirit works through his people, then we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes the results can cause some messy tensions to come about. Not again, again, not because God is messy, but because the people he works through, they're messy. And so different kind of Jews, different kind of Gentiles, being drawn by the Spirit of Christ and the good news of the gospel, but they all come with different kind of backgrounds, different kind of stories, different kind of presuppositions. 
Even among the different kind of Jews, there's different kind of cultural and language things going on. And then the big gap between Jew and Gentile, I mean, the Jews have some kind of religious superstructure in place. Remember in Romans, Paul says, y'all are the Jews. You have the law and the tabernacle and the promises and the covenant and the history, all, all that stuff that Paul and others refer to when they're preaching in the book of Acts and they go back to Israel's history. Well, the Gentiles, as they are hearing the message of the gospel, they don't have that religious superstructure. They met God yesterday. And they don't have any of that background. So we have all kinds of people with a religious background coming together, but they're really, really diverse and different. Then we have all kinds of people with no kind of religious background coming together, and they're being changed by the gospel. And then you lump all that together. Do you see how some of that can kind of be a little messy? And so I'm excited because in the midst of a culture that is characterized by Racism, classism, sexism, nationalism, ethnocentrism, every kind of ism. We have an opportunity to be light and salt in this kind of culture. We have an opportunity. Israel was commanded in the Old Testament to be a a light to the nations. And you know the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells his people, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we have a wonderful opportunity to be the church of Jesus Christ, casting the light on his glory as people look at us and say, wow, what an interesting multitude. I mean, even in the Roman Empire, when the church was persecuted, their opponents were amazed. It's everybody, all kinds of people are in that church, those followers of the way, those followers of Jesus. Educated, uneducated, free, bond servants, male, female, different ethnicities. That, 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 that was fascinating even to their opponents. It was great testimony to what Jesus said said in the scripture to his disciples. All people will know you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. And so perhaps in Ogletown particularly, perhaps in a broader way in Newark and in this region, perhaps even broader in the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware, perhaps even broader just in the Christian testimony in the mid-Atlantic, we might be people who would bear the truth that we believe that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we believe that he calls all kind of people unto himself. And when men and women are called by the Lord Jesus Christ, we become brothers and sisters in Christ, or a word that I've heard y'all use around here, family. So that means we become a family of others. I'm a Jew, but this Gentile's been changed by Christ, and so we are family. I'm a Gentile, so I eat better than those Jews, but they've been changed by Christ, and we are family. I just say that because I'm thankful to be a Gentile, especially when I'm around pork chops and catfish and ribs and... All that kind of stuff that Jews and seven-day Adventists shun. I don't shun any of that. (laughs) I'm a Peter man. Peter, give thanks. Don't say something is cursed if I blessed it. So 
cook it up, lay it down, and let's say the grace. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is a hard statement to say what someone cannot do. You cannot be saved. One of the keys to Christian unity, one of the keys to God's people being a witness in a divided world is to make sure we are real clear about what is the difference between being in and being out. Or what does it take for someone to be in the family of God? Or or, or at a theological level, the church of Jesus Christ must be clear about the gospel if we're going to be able to be clear about who is the church capital C church, the body of believers, followers of Jesus Christ worldwide. We must be clear about that. And that is so important that it's worth disputing about or fighting about. The Bible says in the second verse, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. Things got heated about the clarity of the gospel. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this Jesus is Lord and Christ. Repent of your sin and believe upon him, and whosoever shall call upon the name of that Lord shall be saved, quoting the prophet Joel. These Judaizers in verse 1, and later the Pharisees in verse 5, they're going to say, in order for these other kind of people that we might already have some cultural presuppositions against, in order for these other kind of people to come into the body, they must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And later the Pharisees are going to say they need to kind of perfectly keep the law of Moses. That's adding to the gospel. And so the church must be clear about what the gospel is, the message of the gospel, so that we might be clear about the basis for Christian unity. Ephesians 4 says we ought to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if we are commanded by the Holy Spirit to pursue unity with Christ's people, then we need to be clear about what makes someone a follower of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and he came into the world born of a virgin in order that he might be the perfect sacrifice for sin. In the words of John, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he was crucified and he died and according to his promise on the third day he rose from the dead in glorious power on the resurrection and he ascended on high where he is now the great high priest of the church making intercession for us. And whosoever, in the basic language of John chapter 3, verse 16, whosoever shall believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. Period. Not Jesus plus Jesus, period. Not Jesus plus your religious efforts. Not Jesus plus your circumcision. Hallelujah. Not Jesus plus any other religious things that the Pharisees want to lay upon them. So the Bible says that Paul and Barnabas and the others got into a dispute about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Or in the language of verse 1, what does it mean to be saved? How vital is this question? 
because I have kind of a Paul Peter personality. Um, you know, I never strive for political correctness. Uh, I admire people that are ironic, but I mean, it's not like one of my goals in the morning. Um, so if you say Paul was disputing, that, I mean, that doesn't move anybody. But even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Barnabas is like that person that everybody likes to be around, and he's like, this uplifting it. You know, if Paul, like, ah, sometimes Barnabas is always like, yeah, 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 yeah. Even Barnabas is involved in this dispute. Because what is the gospel? What is the clarifying point between who's in and who's out is a vital question that the church must be clear about. In a world that divides people by all kind of earthly categories, the gospel gives us the clarity to say, who is my brother and sister in Christ Jesus? Therefore, who is part of the eternal family of which I will be bound through all eternity? As much as we affirm family, and we should affirm family, our earthly familiar ties are in time and space. Remember, Jesus says in heaven we won't be given as husband and wife in marriage in the way that our earthly families and familial connections are now, but we will be brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus for all eternity. And so it is valuable to make sure we are clear on the gospel and what is the difference between someone who is in versus someone who is not in. And the Bible says they were such a dispute, they say, look, we need to clarify this. Let's have a meeting. The third verse says they were brought on their way and they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, telling what God had done through the Gentiles and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And then the fourth verse, they came to Jerusalem where they were going to have the meeting and they kept on talking about what the Gentiles had done. So the third verse says that the saints were happy to hear that God was changing other types of people. So I ask you, you know, as you pursue Christian unity, and I know we want to pursue Christian unity because Paul commanded us to pursue Christian unity. As we pursue Christian unity, are we happy when God changes people who are different from us? Before I was a pastor, I was a chaplain in the county jail in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Hamlin County, where my wife is from. And and one of the challenging things was like, Sometimes good church folk couldn't understand. Man, why you spend your time in that jail with them criminals? Like, man, I thought, oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought the gospel was the power of God under salvation for anybody. I-, I didn't know the Holy Spirit struggled with changing criminals. I, I ride a Harley Davidson and I participate. Uh, sometimes uh, with the Christian Motorcycle Association doing evangelism at places like Daytona Beach and Sturgis and all those kind of things. Man, what are you doing out there with them bikers? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought the gospel could change anybody. I didn't know the Holy Spirit was hindered by leather. So Paul, well, not right, not right, yeah, it's Paul. Paul and Barnabas right here are telling about the glorious things that God is doing among the Gentiles, and people are rejoicing about it. So do you rejoice 
over the things that God is doing among people who are not like you. If you want some help in that, you know, sign up for the, follow the IMB on Twitter or sign up for one of the, sign up for the, um, 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 the martyrs website and find out things that God is doing through his church in Afghanistan and God is doing through his people that are being persecuted in Northern Africa and God is doing through his people who are being persecuted in Southeast Asia. I'm assuming this is like a suburban university type area, so find out what God is doing in a Bible faithful church that's like somewhere in the hood in a poor area. Tap into what God is doing among people who are different than us. And then we can say, praise the Lord for his comprehensive, exhaustive, universal, inclusive salvation. Every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And so they're telling them what God is doing in the third verse, and the people are like, praise the Lord for his work, praise the Lord for his work. And and then they come to Jerusalem, and the the church, the religious superstructure comes together, and they gather. And verse 5 says, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees. This always makes me think that, yeah, you know, Baptist history kind of organizationally comes out of the 17th century, but, you know, Baptists are right there in the book of Acts. We, we those butt folk. <sighs> Hallelujah, the Gentiles are being saved. Hey, I got a question. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Just like a good old Baptist church meeting. Everybody's rejoicing, but the Pharisees are not rejoicing. They're suspicious. The move, 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 movements of God usually have like two, two you can read this in, in, in the things of the Great Awakening in America. There's like two kind of crowds. There's like, ooh, praise the Lord crowd. And then there's like the suspicious crowd. Because hmm. when I was a chaplain, people say, man, how you know they really save? How you know they don't just have jailhouse religion? I mean, how you know the people in your church that's shacking and fornicating really saved? How you know they don't have like just come to Sunday, make me feel better about my fornication religion? I, I mean, like for anybody, you do what Jesus says. You should know a tree by the fruit that it bears. It's a suspicious crowd. Oh, no, 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 no. It's needful. This is the uh, uh, fifth verse. It's needful for them to be circumcised, and we need to tell them, keep the law of Moses. And that's such a farce because Peter's going to say down in the 10th verse, you don't even perfectly keep the law of Moses. Why would you tell them perfectly keep the law of Moses? He'll clarify to them in the 11th verse. Don't forget. Don't get it twisted. We are all saved by the grace of God. You're not saved because you have an innate quality of character, of righteousness that is better than them. You're not saved because you keep the law better than them. You're not saved because you have this religious superstructure that they don't have. We are all equally saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning none of, none of us deserves it and none of us can look down on any other brother or sister based upon their background because we all come up in here singing amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me that's our testimony 
Everybody doesn't like Southern gospel, but this is a good old line. Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise, for it was grace that brought my liberty. I'll never know just why he came to love me so. He looked beyond my faults and saw my need. I shall forever lift my eyes to Calvary to view the cross where Jesus died for me. How marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. That's the testimony of every believer. Not just the Gentile ones that have no religious background. That's the testimony of the Jew too. We are all saved by the grace of God. And, and so the Bible says they were trying to put something on top of these Gentile believers besides just faith in Christ. And Paul and Barnabas had seen the workings of the Lord. And they said, no, you can't do that. Now, now, now. Uh, uh, this is a little logistical thing that I think is, can be helpful for us. If you want to know about the fruitfulness of people's conversions or people's testimonies, you probably ought to ask the people that have been ministering to them. Because if you notice, the people that have the suspicions are the people up in Jerusalem who ain't been nowhere near the Gentiles. And the people that's like, y'all are tripping. We have been, they've been saved just like we were saved are Paul and Barnabas who've been out there with the Gentiles and have seen the fruit of conversion in their lives. You know, sometimes the most suspicious people are the people who are most distant from where the action is. So people say, man, you know the Lord is working in these different kind of people's lives. Well, you would know that if you had different kind of people involved in your life and you were sharing the gospel with different kind of people. People say, man, you know, how can we come together as followers of Jesus Christ? What do we need to do with worship and what do we need to do with the church? It doesn't even start in our gathered worship services. It starts at your dinner table. It starts where you hang out at the mall. It starts with who you're willing to share the gospel with. I, do you look at someone and say, oh, I want to share the gospel with them because I want them to be saved? And do you look at other people like, oh, I don't want to share the gospel with them? I used to be so discouraged as a chaplain. Good Christian folk, they say, oh, man, they in there because they did the crime. They did the crime. They deserve what they're getting. I, 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 yeah, yeah, that's true. They did the crime. They sure don't deserve the gospel. Who deserves the gospel? That's the whole point of him saying in 11 verse, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews who have the religious superstructure, they aren't any more deserving than the Gentiles. And so, who are the others in our days? Can you hope? Do you hope? Will you hope for the conversion of other people? Church I pastored in Louisville, <laughs> we were a very red, white, and blue church. And so, you know, when you see a terrorist attack on the news, a lot of times the first inclination that came to mind wasn't, Oh, Lord, please send a revival. I mean, I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, near Andrews Air Force Base. So, I mean, I like big planes, 
big bang, big bombs. I was a child, President Reagan was the president, most of the world was scared of us, I like that. We used to ride our bikes up the Suitland Road, which was before terrorism, that was like the basic route. People like the President, Secretary of State Jim, James Baker, they would just take that route to Andrews Air Force Base to get on Air Force One or whatever. And kids, we'd ride our bike up there, and we'd be on the Suitland Road, we'd be waving and everything, and, and President Reagan was good, boy, you swore he was waving at you. I go, Mom, the, the president waved at me. Shut up, he didn't wave at you. <laughs> and so over the last four years, five years, you know, as things got more intense, more intense, I, I would find that my inclinations weren't always gospel inclina- inclinations. And then... <laughs> Because of people sharing the gospel, I mean, you know, you teach your church to share the gospel and some people actually do it. (laughs) And we started baptizing people from Iran and people from Iraq and people from Afghanistan and people from Pakistan and people from Northern African countries countries, and people from Southeast Asia. And I started commissioning single women that were like leaving our congregation and going to countries in the 1040 window to dangerous places to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all those things begin to affect how you think about other. And then you baptize people and as you're going through the new members process and your simulation process, you or one of the other pastors, you get to go over people's houses and you have fellowship with them. And you talk about their, they talk, they'll tell you about how they want their relatives back in their home country to be saved. I mean, after you pray with somebody, they're praying for their relatives back in the home country to be saved. It, it kind of shifts your desire to like drop the big bang on their home country. It's like, Argh. My Christianity and my I love Andrews Air Force Base and big bombs and big bang is like. (laughs) Do we want others, people different from us, to be saved? And then once they're saved, will we receive them into the body of believers just like any other believer? Because in verse 11 and then in verse 8, Peter uses that language. God has done to them the same thing he's done to them. So he says, they are saved by grace just like us. And then earlier he said, they have the testimony of the Holy Spirit just like us. In other words, their salvation is no different than our salvation. And so can we kind of have an egalitarian, and I don't mean that in a gender way, I just mean that in every believer empowered by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, can we kind of have an egalitarian understanding of the body of Christ that overcomes things of ethnicity and racism and classism and sexism and all those other isms? So he says... They've been disputing, this is six and seven. They've been disputing, they've been having a meeting, everybody's talking about their opinion. I think this, and I think this, and I think this. And you know, in, in, in congregational life, there's place to give people a voice to say the kind of things on their mind. But at some point, after everybody shares his opinion, we gotta hear what God says. So the Bible says in the seventh verse, Peter rolls up and said to them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, God made a choice that through my mouth the Gentiles would hear 
the gospel and believe. Well, all our thoughts, all our opinions, all our feelings, all our inclinations, all our presuppositions are right here. Peter stands up and says, now, all that, we got it on the table. Now, let's step above all that and see what God says and what God has done. And God's actions and God's word trumps our thoughts and our opinions. That's one of the things of Christian discipleship. If you say Jesus is Lord, then he can tell you, shut up. If you say Jesus is Lord, then he can tell you, you wrong. How many times did he rebuke his disciples? What are y'all doing? I'm trying to teach y'all, and y'all back there talking about who's the greatest. Lord, why couldn't we rebuke the demons here? Because some of y'all, because some things come up by prayer and fasting, and some of y'all have little faith. If Jesus is Lord, he can correct you, and he can rebuke you. And they needed a rebuke right here. They needed some gospel clarification. Peter said, God chose that the Gentiles would hear the gospel. And look at the eighth verse. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, and he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. If we're going to be the unified people of God, We need to be clear about the gospel. We need to remember that we're saved by grace. And we need to realize, yes, there's challenges in all kind of different Jews and all kind of different Gentiles coming together. And so we need to talk about those things and clarify those things. But after we talk about our thoughts and our opinions, we need to be able to have all of that trumped by the word of God. And then the sanctification test is, can I look at a brother or sister who's different from me and have that just as I am attitude about them? God makes no distinction in that, um, in that ninth verse between us and them. Can I have a no distinction between us and them type attitude? And that's the thing of Christian growth. That's the thing of sanctification. That's the thing where we need to mortify some of our flesh. Our church in Kentucky had three different campuses. And one kind of had anybody and everybody in there. One was on the east side of Louisville, and it was more upper middle class, white collar professional type folk. And one was on the west side of Louisville, and it was Bubba in them. And sometimes as a pastor, it was really a challenge getting cohesive Christian unity among those different types of believers. I mean, these people over here weren't bad people. It's just that American society had conditioned them to think that they were better than other people just because they had done well financially and professionally. And these people over here weren't bad people. They'd just been conditioned by American society to think, well, yeah, you okay. You're just not as good as old people over there. And sometimes I would play with the differences, but the differences were real. And we had to overcome those differences by the work of the Holy Spirit and constantly press into that. Sometimes I would say, I passed through two Cracker Barrel campuses and one Panero Bread campus. But those differences of culture and preference and food and lifestyle and all those things should not have hindered us from clearly being unified brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I mean, I'm going to take a little Christmas break and we're going to go out of town and we'll have our nephews and we'll have our three kids. And, you know, when seven people are together, it's like seven different people. We don't think the same about stuff, but that doesn't mean we're not family. I go on vacation to relax. My wife goes on vacation to do stuff. That's like, ah, ah, ah. I mean, I'll pay for another couple to go on a cruise with us. Just so when we stop at all those places, that other dude's wife can get off with my wife and I can stay and sit on the balcony. Because <sighs> she want to do stuff and I want to relax. Our differences don't mean that we're not family. Politics is not going to fix What's wrong with America? Money and the change in the economy is not going to fix that. As much as I like Big Bang, our military prowess prowess won't fix that. But what we are commanded to do, whether America gets fixed or not, what we are commanded to do is to be a light and a witness in a fallen, broken world. And I want to spend my life trying to make that a reality in the church of Jesus Christ where I can have some type of influence. I loved our life in Kentucky. I love our church. I miss our church. But I was excited to come here and try to coordinate the efforts of over 500 Southern Baptist churches in Maryland and Delaware because in a lot of parts of Southern Baptist life, unity really means like black and white. Uh, But in the Mid-Atlantic, in Southern Baptist life, unity really does mean black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and all the ethnicities within those kinds of groups. And I just have a burden for something that all Christians don't have a burden about, and I want to be provocative and try to prod them concerning that burden. First of all, Paul commands us, so if you you like the rational, uh, cognitive type person, Paul commands us in Ephesians, pursue the unity of the Spirit. I mean, we understand putting effort into sound doctrine. Earnestly contend for the faith. Yeah, I'll fight you over the Trinity. We understand putting effort into personal godliness and killing your flesh. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we understand sweating for doctrine. We understand sweating for personal holiness. Well, Ephesians 4 says sweat for unity. Endeavor, that's a verb. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, if you're not the strong cognitive intellectual type and you're more emotive and feelings type, my feelings are drastically moved when Jesus prays in John 17, Father, let your people be one as you and I are one, you and me and I and you. May they all be one. Now, here's the, for your pragmatic folk, here's the missiological implications. May they all be one so that the world may know that you have sent me. So if you're about the Great Commission, if you're about revival, but you're not about the unity of God's people, you are pneumatologically, or according to the work of the Holy Spirit, undercutting what you say you're for. And so whether it's cognitive or whether it's emotive, God's people must pursue the unity of the Spirit for the practical implications it has regarding the Great Commission and our ability to evangelize and share the good news of Christ and see results and change through us. And so I don't want to spend my life keep missing moments and missing opportunities. 
Christians in America missed it in the 1790s. Methodists, even Methodists like in the Maryland area, in Baltimore, Methodists in the 1790s were writing against slavery. Bible-believing Christians were writing and thinking and speaking and preaching against slavery, but the economics and the cultural weight of the matter shut them up. 1840s, major Protestant Christianity split over the issue of slavery. First the Presbyterians, then the Baptists, then the Methodists. I always tease my Presbyterian friends like, y'all did that messed up stuff before we did. As if that means something. (laughs) Turn of the 20th century. Well, even before the turn of the 20th century. Emancipation. Christians blew it again. After the emancipation, Baptists believed the same thing. Whether they were black or whether they were white, they believed the same thing. But when black and white Baptists could not come together in our congregational life, thus you have the wide development of the black church in Baptist and Methodist traditions. 1906, the Azusa Street Revival, the beginning of the classical Pentecostal movement. It was multi-ethnic. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. Race got in there again. Why do we have the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, and the Church of the Foursquare? Because the Assemblies of God came out from that broad Pentecostal movement because it was an issue with white men being ordained by this black guy named William J. Seymour. And then obviously in the 50s and the 60s, there were Christians that were right on the image of God and all humanity, but there were a whole lot of Christians that were wrong on the image of God and all humanity. And so whether it's the 1790s or the 1840s or the 1860s or the 1906 or the 1950s and 60s, throughout the history of America, the church of Jesus Christ in America has blown it on issues of Christian unity and human dignity in the image of God and all people. And I want to try to just like not blow it again. That's what I give myself to, try to not blow it again. So I want to encourage 500 Maryland, Delaware Baptist churches, whatever your particular context, be clear about the gospel to determine who's in and who's out. Be clear about the fact that there's not different kinds of salvation. Men and women hear the gospel, are moved by the Holy Spirit, and are born again all the same. There's no difference between us and them or us who are already in and them who are coming in. And then may we do it all realizing that we're all saved by the grace of God, so we give the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a post-cultural era, I mean post-Christian era, and I don't know about you, but I don't have time, and I don't think it's wise to hurt brothers and sisters with friendly fire. I was watching yesterday for a while, I like comedy, but I don't like comedy in sports. And so I watched Alabama and Florida as long as I could. Um, and I, mean, I say that with great sympathy because there's a church I preach at in Gainesville every year. So, I mean, I, I, I love my Florida folk, but it was just an embarrassment. But one of the early plays, an Alabama player was rushing and he jumped up. And he came down on the helmet of another Alabama player. He was injured. Maybe kind of had his wind, uh, uh, breath knocked out of him or something. 
and I text one of my buddies that's a pastor, that's an Alabama nut. I was like, ooh, man, friendly fire, that hurts. Well, we don't need friendly fire in the church. If someone comes from a country that is known to be associated with terrorism, and they are in the body of believers and they make a profession of faith in Christ, and they believe that God is the God who revealed himself as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they believe in John 14 and 6 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by him, and they believe, as Peter said, that they acknowledge their sin and they repent of sin and they say, I want to follow Jesus as Lord, then we ought to receive them as a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. And we ought not do it in some kind of generic way. We ought to do it in a way that just like in the Roman Empire, it baffled even our opponents. The world is divided. May Christ's church not be divided. And there's no season that is easier and more natural for that to happen, that we could pursue unity, than we already together talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you realize right now that Protestants in America and Catholics in Europe and Orthodox in Eastern Europe, th this season of the year and going to the, to the next uh, month because some people have different calendars, but this next two months, Christians all over the world in all kind of languages and tongues will be talking about Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. This is an awesome time to pursue Christian unity. If you are mental, Paul commands it. If you are more emotive, be moved by Jesus' prayer. Either way, it's required for missiological effectiveness. And I know there's some college students here. Sometimes in your 20s and 30s, you don't mind blowing time doing some things because you feel like you got a lot of time. I get that. I've been there. But when you get over into 50, you don't want to waste your time. And I can look around, I see some of y'all past 50. I'm going to die trying to be about the things that Jesus Christ calls us to do and not make the mistakes of the 1790s or the 1840s or the 1860s or the 1906 or the 1950s. I pray that will be your desire according to Acts chapter 15. Let's pray together. Father, please help us see your glory. Help us to see that Paul and Barnabas desired no confusion about the singular work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I don't know the specific demographics of Newark, but I pray that every believer in this congregation would be willing to share the gospel with their neighbor or their co-worker or another parent on their child's sports team, regardless of their ethnicity, their social economic standing, or any other man-made division.
And if different kind of people wander into this congregation seeking a word from the Lord and seeking Christian fellowship, I pray that just as the Holy, Holy Spirit, we would make no distinction between us and them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.